This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, we are welcoming Lindsay Hookway to the show. Lindsay is an experienced pediatric nurse, international board-certified lactation consultant, holistic sleep coach, researcher, and responsive parenting advocate. I opened up a question box in my Instagram stories about who you would like to hear from when it comes to holistic sleep, and an overwhelming amount of you suggested Lindsay. I had such a great time chatting with Lindsay, and we geeked out and nerded out about all things holistic sleep and bed sharing, co-sleeping, so many pieces So much, in fact, that we're breaking down this interview into two parts. So for part one in this episode, we cover holistic sleep, what it is, some of the guidelines and beliefs that underpin this approach, and talk about some of the unrealistic expectations many of us have internalized about infant sleep. Sometimes when I'm looking for sleep experts to come on the show, it can feel a little bit like the wild, wild west where coaches and consultants personal values are very tied into the approach that they offer. And while that might suit them and people who really know what they're looking for in terms of a sleep philosophy, I really value Lindsay's approach in bringing together her experience with research in a really non-judgmental or pushy approach about sleep. Lindsay is all about helping you understand the different variables that impact baby sleep so that you can make informed decisions and feel empowered and have some agency over this area of parenting. This is such a validating episode if you've been struggling with sleep at any stage of your parenting journey. Let's hear part one of my conversation with Lindsay. Have you ever lost your cool on your kiddo and found yourself spiraling into shame and regret? Have you worried that you've damaged your relationship or screwed them up in some way? You love your child more than anything, so when you snap, yell, or scream, you're worried that you've damaged the relationship that you cherish so much. The good news is that in your human moment, when your rage bubbles to the surface, it won't break the attachment that you've worked so hard to build, as long as you learn to repair. Knowing how to repair with your child is one of the most important tools to have in your parenting tool belt. That's why Dr. Asherina Reem, Psyched Mummy, and I are offering a free live masterclass on Monday, March 28th to teach you our three-step method for repairing with your child after you've lost your cool. This live masterclass is packed with valuable information that can help you rebuild and protect the bond you have with your child. We cover how to measure a secure bond with your child, understanding the power of repair, practical ways to repair with your child, and so much more. When you have the right tools and tips, you can break generational cycles and parent in the way you imagined. Join us on Monday, March 28th for this live masterclass. To save your seat, register at happyasamother.co slash masterclass. That's happyasamother.co slash masterclass. 
Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Lindsay, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us from across the pond in a pandemic, coordinating our lives. I am so happy to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I opened up a question box in my stories about holistic sleep or more responsive approaches to sleep, co-sleeping, bed sharing, sort of this whole like philosophy and approach to sleep. And you were like referred to as the queen of this, you know, (laughs) area on multiple occasions. So I was like, we got to have you on. I need to have a chat and understand this perspective more. Here, my role is really just to bring on experts in their area to teach moms and parents about what choices they have. And I sit in this really neutral place as a therapist myself with my own perspective from that field, but really just wanting to entertain these really helpful conversations with parents. So I'm really excited to have you here. Well, it's great to be here. And that's exactly what I'm all about, really. I'm about sort of an alternative narrative to sleep. It's really kind of people to refer to me as the queen of of responsive (laughs) sleep. That's very generous of them. But I'm really just here to provide a different perspective. Yeah. And like queen, I was like, oh, wow, one person said that. No, multiple people said queen for the record. So have, you know, feel good about that. That's very kind. So in your training as a pediatric nurse and how you started out, I'm so curious how this evolved because you've really got quite an extensive training and certificate program happening now. Like how did this evolve for you? It's been a bit of a journey, actually. I, I wouldn't say that I know what I know about sleep directly because of my pediatric nursing training or even my public health nursing training in and of themselves. Although, obviously, I think all training can be really helpful and it adds to the layers of skills that you have, right? So, mm-hmm. I've done loads of different training. I'm a Brazelton newborn behavior observation practitioner. I've done birth trauma recovery training. I'm trained in non-directive counseling, all sorts of things, as well as being an IBCLC. And I've also done multiple sleep programs and workshops and conferences and all of that kind of stuff. So I guess it's been an accumulation of training from multiple different arenas over the last 20 years. So that's what I bring to the space. Yeah. And how did this approach to holistic sleep really become a passion of yours? I guess it was it was kind of personal. I mean, the training that I had as a nurse actually was very mainstream 
it was very much a behavioral sleep training approach. Mm. I learned a little bit about basic sleep biology, but really I was taught about behavioral sleep training. Mm. And it wasn't until I had my own children that I really felt like that jarred. And in actual fact, a lot of what we're taught as nurses and as IBCLCs is about being responsive. It's about guarding infant mental health. It's about responding to children promptly. And I knew that from safeguarding training, so child protection training and all different types of training. And yet there seemed to be this real disconnect when it came to sleep. So it was almost like the narrative we were providing parents with was you must respond to your baby, you must feed them responsively, you must attend to them, you mustn't leave them alone. If they're distressed, they need to be responded to. But then when it came to sleep, there was this different narrative mm. and it jarred. But for me, more than that, it just didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And I'd spent years talking to parents, you know, trying to help them listen to their intuition and try to empower them that they knew their child best. I'm a pediatric nurse and one of the cornerstones of pediatric nursing is family-centered care. And that is about positioning the parents as partners in care, but more than that, as experts in their children's mm. care. And mm -hmm. so again, for me, that really jarred when we were, you know, presenting this behavioral sleep training as the way to manage children's sleep. And then as I dug more into infant sleep, and started thinking, well, actually, you know, how have children been sleeping for the six million years that the human race has been evolving on the planet? Mm. And how have we been managing sleep and feeding and parenting? And what is it about parenting now that has changed, that has caused our approach to sleep to change? And that fascinated me. But I guess it really was just, uh, you know, the way that my own kids slept or didn't sleep, perhaps. Yeah. As well as listening, you know, over the years to thousands of parents telling me how disempowered they felt when people mm. were telling them what to do when their children were sleeping in the way that was probably actually pretty normal. I'm so curious what you learned when you looked back all those years, but I feel like that could be a whole bunny trail for another day. I'm reining right? in my curiosity, but <laughs> yes, I'm so I'm so interested to know that. But one of the things that you mentioned about empowering, so I have to say sleep is one of those topics that I take on on the podcast and on my platform, like on guard, should I say, yep. knowing the crap storm that's going to kick up uh, from either camp. Yep. You know, um, I feel like this is a very polarized topic, but something that you're saying is really resonating with me where parents feel like they have some agency over the decisions that they're making and being able to navigate this topic for themselves, whether that is, you know, in a bit of a sleep training direction or whether that is in a co-sleeping direction, which is another episode you and I are going to unpack and I'm excited. But whatever it is that they feel some agency in making these decisions confidently for themselves. A hundred percent. And that's what I meant about providing an alternative narrative. I'm not here to tell people you mustn't sleep train. Sleep training is awful. Yeah. Um, you're a terrible human if you sleep train. And all of these things are going to happen to you or your child or your bond if you sleep train. I'm not into that. Because yeah. actually, do you know what? There is so much information on the internet and on social media 
And if parents have made an informed, empowered decision to sleep train and they feel good about it, I'm staying out of it. That's just not yeah. what I'm here for. I don't want to argue about that. Yeah. I'm just here for the people for whom that doesn't feel right. Exactly. And I think the problem is a lot of the time, you're absolutely right, it can get really snarky and Mm -hmm. unpleasant Mm -hmm. in this space and you get people kind of pitting one approach against another. To be honest, this is something I'm really used to because I'm a lactation consultant and I get it all the time with Mm. breast versus formula um, milk as well. And actually, do you know what? As a lactation consultant, I have this exactly the same approach. I'm about trying to help you meet your personal feeding goals. It's not up to me to tell you how you should feed your baby. I'm just here to help you try and achieve those feeding goals. And it's the same with sleep. Mm -hmm. So if you want to hear about an alternative perspective and narrative, come over and find me. That's great. If that's not interesting to you or if you're triggered by it, that's also okay because I don't have to have everybody love me. That's totally fine. I'm a big girl. (laughs) That's one of the things that I had to learn in this business and that I can gladly say like, I'm not for everybody and I'm okay with that. You know, I think that that's a really great perspective. And in looking through some of the recommendations that came in, in this poll about having this conversation, like, I mean, in either camp, this goes either way, but some pages are very like their value system personally is very much tied into the work that they do. And I really can appreciate that you seem to come from this very like research grounded place, I guess I could say. And so I'm so excited that we're we're here yeah. and having this chat. I think you're right. I think a lot of stuff can be very opinion based and opinion forming. Um, and that's again, that's not really what I'm about. And not everything is evidence based around this space. I think a lot of it is quite opinion based. Yes. And actually, yes, I I do have a background as somebody who makes decisions based on evidence. And not everything in this space is evidence-based because sometimes there just isn't the research that's been done on that particular specific topic. Mm -hmm. And just because something isn't evidence-based doesn't mean that we disregard it. But I do try to generate information and guidance around the evidence base where where possible and where it exists. Yes, and I so value that approach. When we're talking the like and I just want to kind of address before we even get into this approach like the really extreme feelings that come up for moms when we're having these conversations, right? And I just have to make a connection here like you're talking about feeding like in my work there are some pillars that are just so shame-provoking, guilt-provoking, conflict and shaming others-provoking. And I think because they are so intricately woven into how we envisioned ourselves to be as a good parent and good mother, that it is so threatening to us when our baby isn't sleeping in some way that comes back to us not being a good mom in our belief system And I have to prove my way is right over your way in order to prove that I'm doing a good job. And this is not what we're doing here today. You know, your baby's sleep is not something like there's two of you in a relationship here. You don't have control over every piece of it. And if you're struggling with sleep, just please hear that you are not failing. You are not a bad mom. It's not that you don't know your child. Like we learn on the job in this role and man alive, are we learning everything at the same time? So uh, I want to separate 
that. Like this is not a reflection of you and who you are and your effectiveness. Absolutely. This is something that all parents struggle with and tackle and work on and, you know, find their value system around and find how they're going to approach it. And there is absolutely no shame in doing that. Yeah. That's kind of why most of my followers follow me, actually, because you're absolutely right. When we become mothers and parents, we often measure our worth as a parent based on objective criteria, measurable criteria. And there really isn't an awful lot that you can measure. I mean, you could count nappies or diapers, I guess. But I mean, really, apart from that, it's how is your child feeding and how is your child sleeping? Because you can measure it. And that's why we have 150 million apps that track this stuff because it's really the only stuff you can measure. And so very often what happens is being a good mum or being a failure as a mum becomes synonymous with how your baby is feeding or sleeping. So if breastfeeding has been a real disaster, you can end up feeling like a terrible mother. If you feel like your baby is the only one waking up every hour all night long, you can feel like you've got something wrong or you're just messing it up or, you know, Mm -hmm. you really should go to remedial parenting school because you clearly can't do this basic part of parenting. But actually, and and I felt those things as well many years ago Mm -hmm. when my littles were little. And it's so toxic to think that if your kid doesn't sleep the way the book says or the way the wake window chart says or the way that stupid downloadable says they should be sleeping, then you can end up taking that on board and feeling like a failure as a human, not just a mother, but as a a human, as a person as well. Yeah. Oh, I remember those feelings so clearly, especially with my first. And nursing for me was just kind of one of those things like, I have boobs, they're producing milk. I should know how to do this. This should be a thing, right? And we just have no... We have no idea how much we're thrown into a role that we've not been trained for and that we're learning as we go. I think a lot of people talk about intuition, but actually we forget that parenting is also socially learned behavior and we don't see this anymore. We don't see people parenting in public anymore, not in the same way that we used to. So, you know, we don't see lots of people nursing in public. We don't see people with really fussy babies. No one tells you that babies are sometimes just really annoying. That's so true. We see the highlight reels, right? We see the like perfectly dressed baby in their like perfectly designed nursery and we don't see that others struggle. There is definitely a barrier there. As busy moms, the last thing we need is more on our to-do list. It's hard enough to remember who needs what packed for school, when the next doctor's appointment is, and when to register for events, let alone remembering to call and cancel subscriptions that drain your finances every month. That's why Rocket Money is so great. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. You can see all of your subscriptions in one place, And if you notice something that you don't want, Rocket Money can help you cancel it with a few taps. They even try to negotiate lowering your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. 
cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash momwell. That's rocketmoney.com slash momwell. Feeding the family is one of the most all-consuming parts of the invisible load. Meal planning, shopping, trying to balance nutrition, finding the time to actually cook with little ones needing your focus and attention can be so stressful. But Factor makes it easy. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals take the mental load off your plate, providing pre-prepared, chef-crafted meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to select from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan plus veggie, and more. You can even choose from over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons, including snacks and smoothies. With Factor, there's no prep and no mess. The meals are 100% ready to heat and eat in just two minutes. That means no cooking and no cleanup, which is great for busy moms. You can choose the schedule that works for you and your family. Choosing six to 18 meals per week and pausing or rescheduling your deliveries is quick and easy. Reclaim some time and reduce your mental load with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use the code momwell50 to get 50% off. That's code momwell50 at factormeals.com slash momwell50 to get 50% off. If your house is anything like mine, breakfast is the most frantic meal of the day. We all want to start the day off with a wholesome meal for our kids, but the time crunch makes it difficult. Magic Spoon helps relieve the morning rush with tasty cereals high in protein for a great start to the day. Magic Spoon offers a variety pack with four delicious flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And it has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and four to five grams of net carbs per serving. Each Magic Spoon cereal is made with wholesome ingredients and no artificial flavors or dyes. And since it's gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free, it's great for a variety of dietary needs. Go to magicspoon.com momwell to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code MOMWELL at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund you your money, no questions asked. Try a delicious bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash MOMWELL and use the code MOMWELL to save $5. Oh, I feel like I could just, you are easy to talk to. I could just talk to you all day long. I'm loving this. Can we get into some of the philosophies or some of the things that underpin this approach of holistic sleep? Yeah, I think there are actually quite a lot of misunderstandings about what holistic sleep even means. I've run into a couple of main misunderstandings. And the main one that I get is that holistic sleep is about complementary or alternative approaches. Mm. which it isn't. And the other one that I get a lot is that holistic is synonymous with gentle. I think it helps to start with what it actually means. So Mm. if you look at the dictionary definition of holistic, we're talking with little ones about considering their physical, their psychological, their emotional, their behavioral, their developmental, their 
all of their needs, right? We're thinking about all of right. them. And when you do that, generally, you do end up with quite a gentle approach. If you believe that psychological, emotional, behavioral and relational needs are as important as physical needs, you will end up being responsive and respectful in your approach to little ones. I'm not saying that people who sleep train are inherently disrespectful. So I know. And I think that that's how it does get internalized sometimes in this like rhetoric back and forth. And not all sleep training is extreme forms of cry it out either. So we really want to find the shades of gray in this conversation for anybody who's listening and who has tried sleep training and is feeling like, oh my gosh, was I not being gentle? Like I am a big proponent of like responsive and gentle parenting. But when we use words like gentle, it can be really triggering for some because we have this idea that we have to be nurturing all the time to be a good mother. And then when we're anything but that, again, it comes back to this feeling like we're failing. So this fe- it feels like the stakes are really high in these conversations. But, yes. but I totally hear where you're coming from. And it's about stepping out of just the conversation of sleep and considering other pieces that are holding up you know, the situation and surrounding baby. And I find like I work with social workers and like nurses and people in healthcare and some do this really well where they play this role amongst all the different like specialties with a person and they can really see that. Whereas maybe I come from a mental health perspective and I'm going to sort of narrowly see from my mental health perspective, right? But I really like this being able to step back and just consider other things beyond just sleep, right? Yes. And I think so often what happens is people think that unless you are doing exactly what your little one is preferring, that what we mean is that's not gentle. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm, yeah. I think what I'm usually meaning when I'm talking about handling sleep respectfully is that we almost imagine a conversation we're having with our child where we're saying, do you know what, kiddo? I get that waking up every hour is probably normal. There's probably nothing actually wrong with you. And you're probably totally fine with being nursed back to sleep or rocked back to sleep. And it's just becoming problematic for me because of lots of factors and lack of support and the patriarchy and goodness knows what else. Oh, yeah. But here's the thing. We're going to try something new because this isn't sustainable for me right now. And we're just going to see how it goes. But then the respectful part that comes in is about us listening to their response. And if they are telling us loud and clear, do you know what? I just can't handle this right now. This is too much. Mm. Then actually it's our job as parents, unless it is a dire emergency to say, okay, do you know what, kiddo? This is a negotiation. This isn't, you know, um, me telling you what's going to happen. This is a negotiation. Let's shelve this and we'll come back to it tomorrow or the Mm. next nap or next week or whatever. Now, there are times when there isn't a choice. We just have to stop feeding to sleep or we have to stop nursing at night. I've worked with parents in some really horrible situations because of the work that I do with very sick children. Sometimes Mm. that can be a barrier. I work with some sick adults as well. For some reason, I've had lots of clients who've been diagnosed with cancer and have to start chemotherapy, which is pretty much one of the only contraindications to breastfeeding. And it it really is a contraindication. 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes there is just no choice. And that's where I have a problem with people saying you must never night wean under a certain age. I don't like those black and white rules because actually, if you speak like that, you've probably never worked with these families where, right. you know, you wouldn't for a million years dream of saying that, you know, it's not kind or respectful to night wean your baby. Of course, there are some times when you have to, right? Right, right. But most of the time, it's not that much of an emergency. Most of the time, for the vast majority of parents, we can negotiate. Uh, Mm -hmm. The speed that we negotiate can be variable. Right. I love that you're touching on this. It's not black and white. I think that in these moments, we want to cling to a hard, fast rule for some certainty. Again, to measure how we're doing. But from my perspective with the families I work with, sometimes it's more of a mental health emergency. And it's like, you know what? You need a consecutive six hours of sleep. I don't know how we're going to get it, but your functioning relies on that, right? Yes. And so I think that uh, finding these shades of gray where we flex our thinking a little bit and know that we're not failing by doing that is so, so important. It's so important. But it has to be nuanced as well, because sometimes what happens, um, and I, I hear this a lot about mental health and perinatal mental health services, they prioritize sleep to the exclusion of anything else and disregard, perhaps not not you, I'm not yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, just in your experience. But yeah. sometimes what happens is the one thing that was actually a source of empowerment and self-efficacy. So for example, actually I'm exhausted, but breastfeeding is actually going pretty well. Right. And then if we say, right, that's it, we're just going to get this baby, you know, to sleep through the night. And, you know, perhaps that doesn't impact breastfeeding. Perhaps it does because everybody's different, right? Yeah. But if it does, do you know what? The, the risk there is that we've just lost a major protective buffer And there is so much evidence about breastfeeding when it's going well, being a buffer to maternal mental health. When it's going well, yeah. When it's going well. Yeah. When it's going badly, it can really have a massively negative impact on your mental health. And we know that. We know that. But actually, it can be a buffer. And not only that, but sometimes what happens is when people stop breastfeeding, their sleep actually worsens because they become hypervigilant or Mm -hmm. the breastfeeding was actually helping them go back to sleep. Oh, yeah. Like the discomfort they might feel. It was the one thing they were proud of. Yeah. Yeah, I think about weaning and the discomfort and then I'm awake still, even though my baby's sleeping or whatever. And I think that this is where those nuanced shades of gray come in because um, when there were times when I had to prioritize my sleep, there were open conversations with my very supportive partner, which I appreciate. So he would bring baby to me to nurse. Then he would go do burping and change bombs and, you know, resettle and all of that. So it can be structured still in a way where our sleep is prioritized that doesn't, you know, impact our breastfeeding. So that's why this cookie cutter approach, I guess, to sleep or feeding or anything else really is not always so helpful. I totally agree. And You know, I do sometimes say in a mental health crisis, look, do you know what? Let's just see if we can get four or five hours. The research is quite clear, actually, that four or five hours feels like a spa break when you're chronically sleep deprived. It really does. I speak from personal as well as professional experience there. But there are so many ways that we can achieve that without leaving a little one on their own to be upset 
Yes. They can go to another loving, responsive adult. Of course. Yeah. You know, and as you were saying, actually, often it isn't the feeding that's the problem. It's the settling and the messing about in between feeding, right? It's right. Um, all of that. Yeah. And there is so many different ways. And even in with my different children and in different seasons of life, these things are fluid. And what may have worked for one approach or one developmental stage now shifts again as they age. So I think that even if there's anything to take away from this, like having some flexibility around how we approach these things, it doesn't have to be so black and white. I really appreciate that. So like from a holistic sleep perspective, I'm going to come to you and I am sleep deprived and I've got this little human who I adore but will not let me sleep, (laughs) you know, like from a holistic sleep perspective, what are some of the next steps or some of the things that might happen in order to work a family towards getting some sleep? Yeah, well, so many. So often thinking about parental mental health and self-care is Mm. um, a major one because actually when we think about the way that little ones can't self-regulate. They really can't. They do not have a developed prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that deals with logical thought and reasoning and problem solving. They can't lie there and go, oh, it's okay, because actually I'm clean and dry and fed and um, they can't do that, right? So they need to be co-regulated. But the problem is, if a parent is stressed or upset or their relationship is in crisis or they've got horrible, unmanaged mental health concerns, or they're in pain, or whatever it is that's making them rattled, or jangled, or dysregulated, they Mm -hmm. can't effectively co-regulate their little one. So a lot of the time, we're actually talking about, well, how can we support you? So that's the first piece. The second piece is, actually, what would we expect of a little one of this age? Because sometimes people expect littles to do things that they're not actually capable of, like, Mm. for example, sleep 12 hours straight at night and have a two-hour nap in the day. And actually, if you look at lots of longitudinal data over huge population data sets, it's really unusual for babies to sleep 12 hours overnight under the age of about two. So starting with some realistic expectations of, what might babies achieve is a really good place to start because if we try and make them go to bed too early or we try and get them to have too long a nap, that's just another thing to feel like we're failing at, right? Right. So we do a lot of digging into actually how can we structure the sleep in the day so that actually it's going to meet your little one's needs and we're not over sleeping them so that they actually can't sleep because they're just not tired. That's a really common problem. And then just thinking about what they need in terms of their play and their development, being sociable, activity, you know, tackling underlying issues like discomfort or wind or allergies or feeding problems or whatever it is. Often if we think about, well, actually, you know, your little one might not be sleeping because they've got itchy skin because they've got badly managed eczema or they might not be sleeping because they're not feeding very well because they've got a tongue tie and they're not actually able to feed effectively. So do you know what? Let's actually involve some other people. Let's sort the feeding out. And then do you know what? Your baby's probably going to sleep better because they're feeding better and they're feeling better as well. Mm -hmm. It's it's kind of a multifactorial uh, approach to sleep, I guess. And as you're describing this, I'm just like pulling on my previous experiences, you know, with my littles and particularly that first time adjustment. Holy smokes. Like we had no stinking idea, right? 
And my firstborn was pretty colicky. In the end, he had a peanut allergy, which we discovered around one year old, but we didn't know. So there was lots of reflux issues, lots of like eczema, discomfort, and then co-sleeping, which we're going to get into in part two, and then like overfeeding and just lots of issues, right? And sometimes what I'm hearing from you, and I think that this is so freeing to hear, is it's not really about the sleep or not always about the sleep. It's really like these other pieces. And sometimes with the families I work with, it's about chronic sleep deprivation, like from the parent's perspective. Sometimes it's about mental health. Sometimes it's about lack of support from partner in waking. But when I spoke to a pediatrician about my son's sleep, it was sort of just like, he doesn't need to be waking up at night. You can sleep train and, you know, we can like extinguish some of these nighttime wake ups. And that was just not the reality for us because like sleep is very rarely just a sleep thing is what I'm hearing, right? Absolutely. And what I say, I say a few things all the time. One of them is you can't treat health or feeding problems with sleep solutions because it it won't work. You can mm. you can teach a child that you're not going to come, but you haven't actually dealt with the underlying problem that's stopping them from sleeping well. And the other thing I say all the time is you can't sleep with your foot on the gas pedal. And what I mean by that is you can't sleep if you're in a stress state. And you know, from uh, you know, from perhaps a therapy point of view, that means that actually sleep occurs in the rest digest state. That's the parasympathetic state. It does not occur in the sympathetic nervous system state, which is fight flight. Mm. So actually, if babies are, if they're itchy, if they're sore, if they're hungry, if they're scared, if they're wet, if they're cold or any of those things, they're actually in a stress state and they're not going to be able to easily switch off. So we have to think, well, actually, how can we get you to shift into the parasympathetic state? And that usually is about addressing underlying needs. So get them calm and then they'll sleep. Mm, mm -hmm. nine times out of ten there are some tricky babies out there there really are so if you're listening and thinking oh my gosh I've tried everything I've tapped into all of these things and they still don't sleep you know these babies are out there sometimes people need a few more hints and tips as well yeah and then well in those moments you address on something really helpful too is that like you work with the parents on their expectations around sleep and center the parents needs a little bit here and I think that like first time mom coming in had this expectation that, you know, babies would start sleeping through the night at some point. I can tell you neither one of my boys slept through the night until they passed their first year birthday. And once I got some confidence and figured it out and adjusted my expectations and we got a routine for settling them back, actually like a one or two time a night, you know, on a regular schedule wasn't that disruptive once they could resettle. And, you know, we went with what worked for us in the end. But if my expectation was like, oh, well, past six months, like they've had solids and they should not be waking and whatever, then I'm feeling like I'm doing something wrong or or kind of like I'll hear parents kind of joke like, did I get a lemon? Like what's going on here? You know, but challenging some of these expectations around infant sleep is I know a big part of what you do as well. But also you touched on something there, which was that your pediatrician said, oh, it's okay. They don't need to wake in the night to feed. There is no evidence for that. Right. And I think we have to remember that I, I have huge respect for pediatricians. I know lots of them. Lots of them are my friends and it's nothing about the medical profession. However, they would be the first to say 
that they don't have any training in infant feeding and they don't have any mm. training in infant sleep. And so a lot of the stuff that comes out, you know, you shouldn't be needing to feed at night after six months. They've, they're on solids. There's actually zero evidence for that. And large population data backs that up. You know, huge, huge population data sets, you know, 50, 60,000 children in populations. They're all waking up to, you know, 18 months and beyond. There are some data sets that look at children aged two and three. I'm not saying waking hourly, but as you said, you know, a lot of the time, you know, waking once or twice, if parents feel like, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with my child, they're still waking at night and they're 10 months old. It's actually normal. We don't fix stuff that's normal necessarily. Yes. That's such a good way to frame it, right? A good way to think about it. And I can remember times that felt very abnormal. Like my first was four months old and he was waking every like 45 minutes to an hour. I was going to lose my mind. That was a crisis for everybody involved at that point. But when we got some of that figured out and moved through it, waking once a night and I could nurse him back to sleep and he'd go down was like a breeze by comparison and was non-disruptive. And I knew, especially when I got to my second and third, I'm like, he will sleep. You know, like I know we'll get there. And I had a a more realistic expectation and, and yes. we have more confidence in ourselves and more flexibility when we're coming, you know, knowing our values and our having learned already, right? The second and third time around, there's just so much more confidence and I think decisiveness that comes with these decisions. And there's, I mean, there's so much we could talk all day. I, I frequently do, in fact, <laughs> about <laughs> about this stuff because, you know, is it a child problem or is it a parent problem? Actually, is it the parent who's taking two hours to return to sleep once their little one wakes? If so, actually, that's the problem that we need to fix. Yes. Or is it, what do we think when our little one is waking up in the night? Is it that we feel like everybody else's baby is sleeping and that we're screwing it up? Um, is it actually a problem for us or do we just feel like we're failing if they're not sleeping in a particular way? There's so yeah. much to this. And I think simplifying sleep is always a mistake. In lots of ways, it is simple. But when you really drill down into the nuance, there are a lot of factors to consider. And that's why we need to be considering it holistically, because all kids are different and all families are different and we all have different stresses and pressures and, you know, priorities and all of that stuff. Where were you, Lindsay? Where were you when I was newborn with my, you know, five, six, seven years ago with my children? I'm so happy we're having this conversation. I think that this is going to be so helpful for so many moms listening. We're going to be doing a part two here on co-sleep and bed sharing and all of that. But in terms of holistic sleep, where can people find you? What resources might you have in this area? Sure. Well, I'm easy to find on Instagram as long as you spell my name right. My parents gave me a name that no one can spell. So that was helpful. Um, <laughs> I love my parents dearly. They're fabulous. We're great friends. But yeah, you can find me on Instagram. There's loads of free support there. And then I have three books on sleep. The one that's most helpful to parents in this space is Let's Talk About Your New Family Sleep, which is a clunky title, but it basically covers sleep from pregnancy to about 18 months. And then my website, which is where I've got downloadable stuff. But there's nothing cookie cutter about any of this. And I think often when parents reach out to me, they say what they like about my page and my books and my resources is that we're starting with actually what's normal for your little one. Your mm -hmm. baby is not 
abnormal. You're not abnormal. You're not messing this up. Let's start with what those realistic expectations look like. Let's get you feeling good about this. Let's work out what the actual problem is rather Mm. than assuming that society's perception of sleep is correct. Yeah. So valuable. We're going to link all of your resources, your books, Instagram page in the show notes. Head there. And if you really loved this interview with Lindsay, sit tight because we're going to do part two on co-sleeping and bed sharing. Goodness, wasn't that such a validating and reassuring interview? I absolutely loved my chat with Lindsay and getting to know her better. If you enjoyed this interview, you are going to love part two where Lindsay and I challenge the narrative around co-sleeping and bed sharing and really empower parents to make informed decisions regarding their sleep and their sleep philosophy in a way that they feel empowered and have some agency over. So stay tuned in the next couple of weeks for part two of this interview with Lindsay. If you found this conversation helpful, or you've been personally impacted by the Happy as a Mother podcast, I ask that you would share that with me. Leave a review on iTunes so that I can hear and know the impact this podcast is having. Or share your favorite podcast episode with a friend. You never know where somebody else is at in their motherhood journey. And even something like offering a resource to them can be a lifeline of support. Thank you so much for being here and I can't wait to read and hear your feedback. Make sure to come back next week because we are being joined by Joanna Faber and Julie King, best-selling authors of How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen and their newest book, How to Talk When Kids Won't Listen. They are a riot. So not only will it be equal parts entertaining and informative, but you'll gain a bunch of tools to add to your parenting toolbox so that you are more prepared for this absolutely chaotic adventure of raising little children. We need all the strategies we can get. So come back and join us next week. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com. We make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.